So there's a lot of waiting around on retreat, waiting for the talk to happen, waiting for the meditation to start, waiting for the teachers to come, waiting for lunch to happen. What do you, what's, what do, you do in waiting mind? It's a great moment to practice metta, but usually we're like, come on, <laughs> get on with the performance. So just notice, maybe, maybe you're all wafting waves of matter, I don't know, but just to notice what happens in waiting mind, which we do a lot in our lives, right? Waiting for the bus, waiting for a cab, waiting for a meeting, waiting for a friend. So I'm departing a little from the theme, sort of, um, and I sometimes do this on these courses and sometimes I don't, but I feel pulled to do it a little bit this year, uh, having seen a lot of people in meetings and um, seeing the evidence and presence of the critic, the judging mind, and um, seeing how prevalent that is. You know, I think some people come to a meta retreat because of the suffering of the judging mind. So maybe I notice it more on meta retreats than other retreats. I think it's pervasive and I see it on every retreat I teach, but it seems it's a, such a juxtaposition from the spirit and essence of kindness that it seems to stand out. Anybody notice the critic this week? All right, just a little bit. <laughs> uh, one of the ways it was noticing in a few people today was um, the sense of being an imposter. You know, who are you? The critic will be saying, who do you think you are to send loving kindness? I know what you're really like. I know you don't really believe this. I don't know. I know you don't really like this person. I know that, you know, deep down, you know, you're not really compassionate. Right? Sound familiar? The undermining voice, right? What I call the inner saboteur. And so it's important that we recognize these, these mental habits, these voices, right? And, and the critic can show up in lots of different ways. You know, I used to, when I was on a book tour, it was fun. I'd always collect names uh, from people, what they called their critic. You know, some it was the bully or the taskmaster, or often it was mom or dad. Uh, mostly mom, actually, which was always surprising to me. I expected dad more than mom, but anyhow. Um, my favorite was the itsy bitsy shitty committee. Um, and often I'm be talking about the critic and someone will pipe up and say, wait a minute, it's not just one voice in there, it's like living with a whole college dorm of people, you know, a boardroom of people on your case, you know, about your looks and your finances and your meta practice and who knows what, you know, follows us into our meditation room, follows us into our spiritual journey. You're not Buddhist enough, you're not compassionate enough, you're not mindful enough, you're not spiritual enough, you're not deep enough. So it leaves us with this sense of deficiency, this sense of not enoughness, right? Our practice isn't enough, our heart isn't enough, or our body isn't enough. So we want to listen and see how the critic sometimes masquerades as a coach, as a friend, doing good, doing good, little more meta, little more meta, doing good, doing good, oh, terrible, 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 no, yeah, little more, little more, little more. And if we, if we, you know, there's a line from, I think Dustin Huff, Huffman, he said, neither caught the critic's smile nor dread its frown. Right? We, li- we look for the smile, but when, we, when, we give it, when we're giving it attention, the more we give attention, at some point we get slapped down. It's just the way it works. So, um, so why I think it's important to look at on a meta retreat, particularly because so many of us self-meta is hard, partly because we've been listening to a voice in our heads that's saying, you're not good enough, you're unlovable, you're stupid, you messed up, you're never going to get your life together, etc., etc. So no wonder we don't have an access to a sense of well-being if we've been listening to that voice. So notice how much you listen to that voice. Right, so this is where the fusion of mindfulness and these heart practices come together. Right, the mindfulness, the awareness, the discernment can look at that voice, can listen, 
be aware of it, name it, feel its impact. Right? As I mentioned in the talk the other night, when I, when I began to feel how much wounding that voice creates. Right? It's, like a, it's like, a, like a bruise in the heart. Right? When you, if you imagine you gave your, all your judgments, you wrote down your top 10 judgments, which I recommend you do at some point, and look at them. You give them to your best friend, and you say, just tell me those words. Just, just, just say those things to me. Right? You wouldn't let anybody talk to you like that for more than 10 seconds. You'd say, stop, enough. This is mean, cruel, horrible, probably not very accurate, not true, not helpful. Stop, please. Okay? But what do we do with that inner voice? Oh, I'm bad? Oh, I'm a telemeditator? Meditator? Oh, really? Yeah, I'm a bad meditator. You're right. And we start to feel collapsed and we feel ashamed and we feel stupid and we feel isolated. We feel like we're the only one. So notice your relationship to the voice, right? We've been speaking about what's happening and our relationship to it. How do you relate to this voice? Do you believe it? Do you give it a lot of time? Do you give it authority? Do you think it's objective? Right? Write down that list, share it with a few good friends you know, and say, is this true? Am I unlovable? Am I stupid? Am I worthless? Am I not a good person? Or is my kindness fake? Or whatever your critic is saying to you. And they'd say, no, this is not accurate. This is not true. So, so as we're doing this practice, um, pay attention to what you're telling yourself. And then when you hear the judge, it's good to name it in mindfulness practice. We name things, oh, judging, oh, harshness, oh, cruelty, but mostly just judgment. Oh, thanks, mom, or whoever your voice is, you know. Feel it, how it lands in you. Joseph used to give me the instruction of counting the judgments in a day. That became rather comical when it got up to 389, 462, <laughs> 785. It's like, this is really silly. Why am I listening to this voice that's saying, and mostly saying the same old thing? Right. So it's good to have a sense of humor about it. And it's also useful to, someone was asking a, a question that I'll speak to later about, about boundaries. Um, I would say the critic violates our boundaries on a daily basis. We let it in, we invite it for tea. Oh, please tell me what you think about my value as a human being. <laughs> I'm really unworthy, oh, okay, thank you. Oh, what did you say again, unworthy? Oh yeah, unworthy, right, thanks. Tell me again, what did you say? Right, that's what we do. And the, the, what's poignant about the critic is it's not just a statement like, oh, you know, your meditation was a little off. Your meditation was off, therefore, your value and worth as a human being is less. That's the impact of the critic. It undermines our value and worth as a human being. That's why it's so damaging. That's why I talk about it. That's why we come to these retreats, because often our sense of worth and value is diminished because of that voice. So um, Jack's retort that I hear, him, uh, Jack Cornfield's retort is, thank you for your opinion. <laughs> Which it is, it's an opinion. Thank you for your opinion. And then I add, and have a nice day. Or go bother somebody else. <laughs> or not interested. Right? Mostly I just say, thank you, thank you, very interesting, sarcastically, humor's very good, thank you for your opinion. Next, let me get back to what I was doing, thank you very much, oh, may I be happy. Right? Or adding a phrase of kindness, as I mentioned, after each judgment. Oh, but your meditation's useless, and may I be happy. Yeah, but it's just a waste of time, you being here, what's the point? May I be peaceful, and on and on and on. 
And at times, maybe not so much in the meditation itself, but to bring some inquiry to it. Is it true? Are these words true? Are these voices true? Are these statements true? Usually not. Are they accurate? Usually not. And even if they are true, maybe you did something that was hurtful, mean, cruel, and the judge is on your case 50 times a day, right? as if that's going to help us next time, if we really beat ourselves up enough, maybe we won't mess up next time. What the beating up does is makes us feel bad about ourselves, which isn't necessarily grounds for constructive change. Inquiry, reflection, understanding why we might have done something cruel, that's, that's good grounds for changing in the future, not making ourselves feel miserable. And a couple of last points. Uh, also notice when the critic arises. Maybe you're in the dining room and you drop your fork or your plate and there's a tremendous self-consciousness. Right? Forks drop, you know, things drop out of our hands. That's part of gravity, you know. But our critic will be on our case all day. You can be sure of that for being pathetic and unmindful and stupid, how, how embarrassing in front of everybody. The teachers were watching, oh my God. <laughs> you drop your plate. But it triggered a, a certain vulnerability, a certain self-consciousness, a certain identity around wanting to be seen, to be liked, to be approved of, to be accepted. Right? So usually the, the critic arises in moments of vulnerability, trying to protect us in, from future moments of vulnerability, but does it with a, with a sledgehammer, not with, a, not, with a, not with wisdom. Ultimately, we want to learn to be disinterested in what the critic has to say. The critic doesn't necessarily go away. Mine hasn't certainly gone away, even though I've done a lot of work on it, I've written about it, I teach about it. But it's a little more like a yapping dog that I don't give that much attention to. I'd rather it wasn't there. I'd rather it was quieter than it is. And it's like, you know, there'll be certain things I do. Maybe I'm late. Sometimes I'm, so I teach a lot at Spirit Rock and I cut my timing a little fine. I hit traffic. I know my critic's going to say something about, why didn't you leave earlier? And I'll say, that's a really good idea. Why didn't I leave earlier? <laughs> I should have thought of that. You're so smart. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> so um, so it's the, the, the key is the relationship to it. Noticing it, thanking it for its opinion, thanking for it for trying to take care of you, and I'm going to go back to what I'm doing. Thank you very much. And then giving yourself some loving kindness. And I do think the loving-kindness practice, particularly towards ourselves, is, is one of the deepest ways to excavate and lay a much more wholesome, kind foundation for genuine self-regard and self-love and, and, and accurate self-perception, where we see our strengths and our gifts and our goodness, as well as all of our you know, foibles and uh, wacky idiosyncrasies, because we're human. We see our humanness in all of its beauty. Okay, so enough about that. So we're still exploring the theme of the neutral person today. I I use the word stranger because I think neutral person is a weird word. Most of the world to us is strangers. We don't know them, we don't care that much about them. And as as Aaron spoke to today, we can learn to include them in our our ambit of concern. Um, I generally, advise people to choose someone on the retreat so you have a point of reference. I usually choose someone on staff. I've fallen in love with many staff, not fallen in love, but fallen to love many staff members. Um, just because, you know, when, as, as, as we've spoken about, when you, turn, when you give your attention fully to someone or something, we start to see them. We start to say, oh, they're a human being. Oh, and they have needs and concerns and... Um, and when we, when, we, when we hold someone's humanness in our hearts, you know, at some point we see, our, we see our commonality, our humanity, and affection arises, or at least warmth, or a tenderness, or, or a shared vulnerability. And that's where we, we, we start to bridge that chasm of otherness, which we create in, in, in vast swathes. We, we, we regard most people as other.
And so as we, what I've learned is doing the, the, the meta practice for strangers for so long that when I'm out and about in my day in the city or wherever I am, there's much more uh, um, access to seeing strangers not as strangers. But we're all in this human uh, experience together. And so there's much more interest, much more um, openness and curiosity and, um, and warmth, actually, and, and at times affection. So, um, and the other thing I was, was going to say, so the teachers, we had a discussion about um, the, the one way that Aaron spoke to a question this morning about the five sisters. And um, uh, one of the reasons we team teach is, is because there's different ways to do this practice and many ways to do the practice. And often we've said it's to do it in the easiest way possible. And that means it might look different for different people. Um, so we, as, as, as Aaron spoke to, we generally suggest choosing one person and sticking with them. But it may be that that's not how your practice unfolds. It may be that the five sisters are who shows up in your good friend section and you do metta for the five sisters. You know, or you're, you, you call to mind your best friend, but really you can't separate your best friend from the person they're married to. And so your metta is for a couple. You know, or as Sylvia Borstein does her meta practice, first she, she does all 17 members of her family and then expands from there. You know, sometimes meta is like a conveyor belt and you, you just, you just, <laughs> they just keep coming through and that's your practice. So, and there's tremendous value with sticking to one person and going very deep with that person. And it's also, I find, helpful to be responsive. Sometimes someone shows up and that's who's wanting to be in the practice. And so, okay, so this is my benefactor today. And it's different from the person yesterday or the last sit. And so it's also fine to be flexible, particularly if there's juice or energy there. So I just wanted to add that piece to the instruction. Okay, so let's sit together. And beginning the practice either with a wishing metta for a benefactor or a friend.
extending the same wish to yourself. Extending this same wish to a stranger. Making sure to really establish a strong sense of this person in your mind, in your heart, visualizing them, sensing them. Very easy for the mind to drift if we don't have a strong connection Just as I wish to be happy, may you too be happy, and so on.
And lastly, extending this wish to those sitting either side of you, in front of you, behind you. Who may equally be strangers or neutral to you. time as you end the practice and you move and slowly open your eyes, just noticing if you can keep the practice going, the phrases, the wishes, right? it doesn't need to be a break when the sitting ends. So some time for questions. I've got some here from the board. One question, is it okay to tell our friend that we are doing a practice for them? Um, well, it depends. Um, so if, you're, you know, if you've included your friend in your meta practice, I guess it depends where you put them. So if you were telling them, oh, I had a great time, you know, you were in my difficult category and I really was able to find some kindness towards you, they might have some feelings about that. Um, so I, I would tread carefully with that one, especially if they don't quite understand what the practice is. Um, and um, maybe it's enough that you hold it to yourself. Um, and then this question, can you please share some examples of how to respond when we feel our boundaries have been crossed while um, practicing metta? So I think this question speaks to, I, don't, I mean, I don't know, it's hard to know with written questions where the question comes from, but um, I think one of the things that we forget with metta practice is um, it includes ourself and that I think meta practice is actually a really great and healthy support for listening to ourselves and cultivating that self-respect, self-awareness, and, and also awareness of our limits and our boundaries and, 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 and setting boundaries as a practice of kindness and self-compassion. So I think that easily gets overlooked with this idea of, of meta being kindness to others, but overriding somehow our own limits or what feels safe or comfortable. So, um, um, you know, I, I can say a lot more about that question, but I think it's really important. And I, th I think that, that, that loving kindness becomes a very practical support for listening and acknowledging uh, that we have boundaries, that they're fine to have, and that we can uh, ask that they not be uh, crossed over. So, questions about your practice? Yes, Jerry. Concerning the critic, mm. and uh, this is not an inner critic, this is an outer critic, this is a friend, mm. who um, basically I asked in the theater, she, should, she thought the play was too serious, she had just moved, she was in the process of saying it due to her ex-husband and um, and so she said I'd rather go to a movie mm -hmm. and I said I didn't this was all through text mind me this wasn't face to face so I said I'd rather not go to a movie and before I know it and she 
has little history of this. She lost it. What kind of Buddhist are you? Well, who would strange you? I mean, you're really a bad Buddhist. <laughs> Wow. And I thought, I said, you know, basically, hey, I don't know what's going on, but I really don't want any part of it. This is very hurtful to me, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. I don't want to see you right now. Yeah. And I tried contacting her uh, again about two weeks, and, and she the same thing happened. So I've been thinking about using her as my difficult person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't really know whether I want to remember her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I may have a less difficult person, although pretty difficult. So I wanted your advice and thoughts about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds very painful. So the comments about you know interaction with a friend um, about you know a relatively benign event, going to see a play or a movie, and then the friend um, being upset and then turning on Jerry and being very verbally abusive through text uh, and very painful and hurtful um, and critical. And so, you know, how to deal with the outer critic and, um, you know, and I guess it, it also relates to the question of boundaries, you know, and I think it's appropriate that when someone's being verbally abusive and critical, if they're not amenable to any kind of dialogue, that you say, you know, this is not healthy or skillful, appropriate for me to be around this right now until something shifts. Um, and, uh, and then the question about whether to have them as, as the difficult person, you know, because our friends definitely move around the categories and um, try it, you know, see what it's like when you, when, when you put her in, the, in, in this category and just see if it's too triggering, if it's too fresh and raw, then, you know, maybe it's not the time you choose somebody else. Um, but, uh, you know, the practice is experimental and just see what happens. And, you know, sometimes if it's fresh, it can be actually also quite useful because you're really cooking in it. But not if it just creates a whole story or it just triggers a lot of pain that's hard to work with. So it's really about how do we be with balance with it. Afraid of the pain. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe it's too fresh and too raw and, you, and it's too much right now. So, you know, because it's, it's really, it is really painful when friendships turn like that. So suddenly, you know, it can be very jarring to the, you know, to our heart. So maybe, yeah, choose someone a little less difficult for now. Yeah, thanks. Yes, lots of hands. I'll start here. Yeah. Uh, the suggestion of using metta, like, for example, waiting. Like, sometimes I do that and it becomes just background. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So the questions about the comment I made about what are you doing when you're waiting, and she's does that, and the phrases are there or their background, and and is it just? It sounds like it sort of goes on autopilot. Yeah, and is there any value to that? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's definitely the danger with this practice that that, that we can be saying the phrases, you know, and booking a restaurant or, you know, <laughs> thinking about our taxes that we haven't filed yet or, you know. So um, I, think, I think if it goes rote, then drop the phrases because you don't want to make that become a habit. Um, and um, then just shift to mindfulness. Just be aware of what's happening as you're, as you're there looking around, sensing or feeling impatient or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, important that we don't just have the phrases be so rote that they don't mean anything, because it erodes the potency of them when we are using them in a very, in a more distilled, concentrated way. Yeah. So yes, at the back over there. So I had a question about walking outside and during that time. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. So the question about 
walking, being outside, lots of stimulation, hard to maintain visualization of people like the neutral person. That's why we generally say mostly keep it simple, stay with yourself, and then, and then whoever you happen to see in your field, whether it's a person, a bird, a car, um, extend it in that way. Or if somebody comes into your mind, you wish them well, but you stay with what's here. Otherwise, it does get too mentally gymnastic-like. Yeah, yeah. And then also extend it. I'm going to talk about loving kindness and nature tomorrow. So send it to you know all the beings out there. There's a lot of them. Yeah. Yes, please. Mm. And I've been trying to give her meta, but the phrases don't seem to apply since mm-hmm. she's not safe and protected from inner and outer harm. Mm-hmm. Sort of every one of the phrases seems to be sort of incongruous to her reality. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I wondered if there were phrases for the terminally ill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the question's about a mentor having a terminal uh, cancer uh, illness diagnosis and either the phrases don't feel like they fit, which is often true. So a couple of things, uh, three things come to mind. One is um, you can add at the end of a phrase, however you phrase it, like may you be as healthy or as healthy as you can be, or may you be as healthy as you can be, may you be as happy as you can be given the circumstances, may you be as safe as you can be, right? Uh, may you be protected from harm as much as you can be internally with whatever the mental anguish there might be. So you can add an addendum to the phrase that just speaks to, yes, you know, they're like not going to be, you know, dancing through the tulips, you know. But you could, but they, but we still wish for them to be well in their condition. We wish to find, we wish them to be as healthy or as pain-free in their condition, right? Or as have as much ease in their in their demise, right? That that's they still apply. So that's one thing you can do, um, or you can shift the phrases. You can and, and shift more to compassion phrases. You know, may you be free of pain, physical pain, as you as you go through this process. May you be free of suffering. Right? Um, so at times, I think it's fine to modify the phrases because sometimes wishing happiness when someone's maybe suffering that much doesn't seem so either attuned or relevant or hard to connect with or seems a little insincere. So, um, so yeah, so adjust in that way. Yeah. Yes. So what if your judgments, the judging mind, it is an opinion in your head, but what if you know it, it was a true thing? Mm-hmm. Some other, what if it was someone else's opinion and you know that for a fact it was true? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's not, I mean, often what the judge is saying is true, you know, like, uh, you know, maybe you show up late for a really important meeting at work, or you show up late for a friend's birthday, that, and it's really annoying and hurtful to them. And the critic's like, "I can't believe you were late! God, you blew it!" You just, and you say, "Yeah, I was late. You're right. I was late. Thank you. I got that. I know I'm late. It's on my clock." So it's not like we're trying to deny, if something's true, it's like, yeah, right, yeah, I messed up. I should have done something I didn't. Right, thank you. What we don't need is the, you know, 500 comments that were a terrible person because of that fact. Yes, I know that was a terrible thing to say. Yes, thank you. End of story. I don't need to hear about it again. Right? That's... Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for your opinion. Thank you for your point of view. I hear that that's how you see me or perceive me. You're welcome. You're entitled to your point of view and perspective. And and we will we will agree to differ as we do often in relationship. Yeah. And the same with the critic. Thank you for your opinion. Thank you for your point of view. I have a different perspective. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. 
then we'll get over that. Yeah so the, yeah so the question about customizing keep it simple with the phrases i mean generally the emphasis is keep it simple try and find phrases that mostly work most of the time for most people and even if it's not the perfect thing for that person you want them to be you know joyous not happy you know or calm not peaceful you know if it's good enough it's in the ballpark it's really just the conduit for the heart so, and, you know, just like with, with this person, with the, the friend mentor who's, who's dying, right? Sometimes it's fine to, to attune the phrase. Just don't, if you notice you're getting a lot caught up in designing, figuring, you know, editing the phrases on the fly, that, that's, it just, that then just gets in the way, really. So simple enough, general enough. You know, and then sometimes the phrases change by themselves. It's like, okay, well, I'm doing them that way or in that order, and it's like, okay, well, go with that. But don't, don't get, don't let it agitate too much. Is the main thing. Yeah. Yes. Did anybody not hear the question? <laughs> okay, good. Um, so, yeah, you know, you bring up a, a really interesting and, and deeper reflection around where we do this practice from. And, um, you know, so in, in what you're pointing to in, in Buddhism and in other teachings, there's an understanding of different levels of reality. Um, the relative and the absolute, and uh, to some degree, metta is a relative practice. Most practices are in the relative framework, um, but don't have to be, right? They're not exclusively relative. It depends how you do it. It depends on your understanding. Um, so, um, so, so, as give an example, I was having a discussion today, I think, with someone about um, whether one first has to touch into the sense of oneness before one extends kindness. And I said, well, my experience is the, the extending of kindness in the, the resting in the heart and the extending of kindness is what allows us to understand and abide in that knowing of non-separation, right? So it can be done in different ways. I'm here, you're over there, I'm wishing you to be well, right? That's one way, that's a more relativistic way of, of, of doing the practice. And that's often our experience. There are other times when we're not feeling so separate, when we're sitting and we call someone into our heart and we feel 
the non-separateness. We feel that we're not different. We feel the connection, the deep interconnection, and the phrases and the quality is flowing or merging or however we frame that. And the myself, as it were, and the love and the other person are part of a field that's not separate. And the deeper that one abides in that love, the deeper the sense of non-separation. We're really loving ourselves, really. Ourselves in the big picture. So, um, you know, but, you know, and and we, we flow in and out of different perspectives or vantage points in the same way that our sense of self sometimes feels, you know, we drop a plate in the dining room and our sense of self is like that, right? It's tight, it's rigid, we're self-conscious as me, I dropped a plate, aren't I stupid, I can't believe I did that, a lot of stories and narrative, right? Maybe other times you're walking in the woods or you're sitting quietly and the sense of self and boundary dissolves and there's just hearing happening by itself, just presence doing its thing, loving kindness flowing by itself, right? So, um, and all of those realities are fine um, and we can do any practice from different levels, as it were, different levels of understanding. So, um, that's why I said this the other day, um, when, I, when I'm doing meta practice, I first get really quiet and, and tune into the sort of the deepest levels of my being and my heart and allow the phrases to emerge from there, not from here, right? So I'm sensing the person, I'm sensing our connection and allowing this sense of love or or well-wishing to emerge. So it has a more effortless, non-doing, non-doer quality, right? But that's not always accessible. Maybe your mind's very busy or agitated or you hate this person <laughs> and you don't feel very connected at all, right? And so we're working on that level of our reactivity and fear and constriction. Right? And at times that can soften, at times it doesn't. So, um, so I think what, you know, what I'm hearing in the question is, is we can do this practice from different levels. And um, we can do it from here, we can do it from here, we can do it from a place of complete non-separation. Right? And that's where the practice and our heart eventually goes, where we see that nothing is separate, that there isn't another. And that's how love suffuses. Right? Yeah. And then it's hard to abide in that expansiveness because you know the nature of experience is it expanding and contracting. So you may be suffusing and dissolving the walls between you and everything in here, and then you're late for dinner, and there's no dinner left, and suddenly it's like, (laughs) what about me, (laughs) right? And then you go, and you laugh, because you go, well, well, what me is that? I I was just everything, and now I'm suddenly this, you know, grumpy yogi who just missed soup, you know? And you laugh, and 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 you sit down, and it softens, and Right? That's, that's life, that's practices. I call it the accordion of, of self. Right? Sometimes super tight, sometimes so expansive it dissolves itself. Right? You know, what's the Nisagadatta's line? Is it Nisagadatta? Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. Between the two, my love flows. Right? Sometimes we, we're absolutely just dissolved into nothingness. Love tells us we're merged, connected, not separate with everything, right? And we do that dance. So, thank you. Yeah, maybe that's a nice place to end. So, yeah, so just noticing the the accordion of your heart and the accordion of your practice. Expansive, beautiful, open, tight, contracted, heart, gnarly, grumpy, struggle, right? And and it it moves, right? And, And that's why it's nice to have a whole retreat where we see it's all welcome, it's all part of the practice. That is as much a part of the practice as this kind of knotty, struggle, bored, restless, right? and then it opens and it softens and it closes and it opens, that's the heart. And we're, we're slowly nudging the heart and, and presence to, 
to abide more here, not here, but inevitably collapses. You know, someone takes our zafu and... (laughs) 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 May everybody be happy except that person. Right, and, then go, and then we see that, right? We see our humanness, right? I think in meta practice, it's seeing our humanness and being kind with our humanness. We're vulnerable, we're, we're wacky, we're silly, we're self-centered, and then we're loving and like that. May we be happy in all of the phases of our opening and closing heart. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.